<laughs> Happy start to your Advent season. Let's take our seats, put our conversations on pause, and prepare to hear God's Word proclaimed this morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Jeff Schleter. Joy, there we are, uh, to be a member of this pastoral team and to open up God's Word with you this morning as we kick off our Christmas sermon series, The Christ of Christmas. As we draw our minds and our hearts and our attention to beholding the glory of Christ at Christmas. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. And I think we still have some house music on. There we go. <laughs> this morning, we'll be starting off our Christmas series by reading from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So you can turn there uh, as we're getting ready to go. Si habla español, abran sus libros a Mateo capítulo 3. Versículo 13, uh, 10 y 7. El bautismo de Jesús. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning together each and every week as we gather. And even if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles provided under the uh, center seat of the rows if you need one. Uh, there we go. If uh, you can't grab one of those too far away, you prefer your phone, you can just go on your phone's browser and type in Matthew chapter verse 13. This morning we'll be reading from the ESV translation in English. And so, for the past three years, this is our, well, this is our fifth Christmas as a church, but the first uh, year we didn't do a Christmas series. But for the past three years, we've studied the cast of Christmas each Christmas season, and we've learned about many different characters who have played many different roles in the Christmas story. And after three years, you run out of characters. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, now, after three years of looking at the cast of Christmas, who have played many and multiple roles, we turn our attention to the Christ of Christmas. And behold, just one character who played many roles, Jesus, who was and is the appointed Savior, who was born to perfectly play every role needed for our redemption, to be the prophet, to be the priest, and to be the king. And so today, in this year, we move from the whole cast of Christmas to the whole Christ of Christmas as we behold Jesus fulfilling of these offices, um, to be the prophet who would speak to God's people and declare God's truth, to be the priest who would reconcile them to God, and to be the king who would keep them under God's rule. And we've been hearing about these roles now, or these offices, for months in the book of 1 Samuel. And so the question you might be asking right now as we're getting going on this Christmas series is, is why are we still focusing on them? Why are we making so these roles? Why are we making the focus of our Christmas series? And that's because in 1 Samuel, we've seen these roles in action, yet for the most part, they've been accompanied with much failure, and only hints of faithfulness. We've seen these roles in action, and we've seen them falling short. We've seen God's people of old. We've seen ourselves. We know that we're prone to look for lesser prophets, lesser priests, lesser kings. And those who hold those offices then and now are prone to fall short. We've seen in 1 Samuel that the sons of Eli, Samuel, Saul, and even David, who we'll see uh, starting next year in 1 Samuel, all these will fall short. 
of fulfilling the offices. And this is important, church, because without the fulfillment of all of these roles, our salvation is incomplete. And even if the other two were perfectly fulfilled and just one was missing, it'd be like a grand table that had three great legs, or three great legs, changing the numbers, but you can go with me here, three great legs, but the fourth is missing. And this table can't sustain the weight of the feast promised and put upon it, and the whole thing collapses on itself. We can't just have two-thirds of the roles fulfilled. We can't have two-thirds a Savior. We need the whole and complete Christ, the whole and complete Savior who's come into this world to play and to fulfill all these roles. And along the way in 1 Samuel, we've seen this fulfillment. We've seen it uh, in a glimmer, in something that is looking ahead as we are somewhat in the shadows of the Old Testament story. And with those characters, we're longing for and looking toward the one who would come and be better than Samuel, better than David, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And we see glimmers of light, but we're longing for the, the full dawn. It's like we're all, you know, crowded around a, a, a door and there's a keyhole and we can see the light just starting to stream through. <laughs> but we're all crowding, and all of us are trying to get in there and see it, and we're out in the dark and out in the cold, and we say, when <laughs> will the doors open wide? When will the light come? And when can we step into it and enjoy all the pleasures, all the joy that's in the house? We've seen the glimmers and the flickers of light, but now at Christmas, and in this series, we see the doors flung open, the floodgates broken, and the glory of Christ shining through marvelously. And this is what we're applying ourselves to this morning. That what was foreshadowed in 1 Samuel is now fulfilled as Christ has taken on flesh to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's come. And so we turn our eyes to him. We turn our eyes to the one, even as we sung and even as we confessed through our responsive reading, to the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so in order to shine forth his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And church, this glory, the glory of God that's revealed in Christ, is on fullest and most wonderful display in his salvation of sinners. Salvation, Charles Spurgeon said, is God's highest glory. And even as all creation, from the very beginning, has been incessantly singing his praise day in and day out from the very beginning. And even as God was glorious before Christmas. And even as he would be glorious if Christ never came. He would always be all he is. But when the creator himself stepped into creation, a new song began to be sung. A song that was greater, Spurgeon says, than all the singing of all the praise of all the glory of God from the very beginning because, he says, at that point, but sing, sing, O universe, till thou hast exhausted thyself. Yet thou canst not chant an anthem so sweet as the song of the incarnation. Christ comes to show forth the glory of God and we apply ourselves now to behold it and to be changed by it. Christmas is about celebrating the glory of the Savior who came to save us. And this anthem that Spurgeon mentions is the anthem we're now singing. 
as we behold Christ, the one complete and comprehensive Savior who shined forth his glory in coming for our salvation. Like one in the same diamond gem that when held up to the light shines and refracts multiple beautiful uh, rays of light, multiple different ways. Uh, the, the one diamond <laughs> reflects uh, the, the beauty and the, the glory and, and the splendor. The incarnation, it reveals the fullness of God in the glory of Christ. The word who took on flesh came to take up the offices and roles of prophet, priest, and king in order to save us to the uttermost. In short, he was born <laughs> to play these roles. He's come for this purpose. And we need to see this Christ. We need to see this Jesus as we enter into this Christmas season and let him take the absolute center stage in our lives and our hearts. As uh, Jim Boyce says in his book, The Christ of Christmas, he says, men and women express sentimental thoughts about the infant Jesus as they go about their own affairs and pleasures at Christmas time. But few pay any attention to the real Christ, and they do not make room for him in their lives. Church, we need to make room for a complete and total Savior. Not the Jesus who is the cherry on top of our Christmas celebration. Not the Jesus who is a supporting character in our lives in which we are at the center. But the Jesus who has come to reveal his glory. The Jesus who is the primary and main character, the focal point of God's work in the world, our Savior. The Word who's become flesh. We need this Jesus at Christmas time. And so this is why we turn our attention to the Christ of Christmas who fulfills these roles because without the fulfillment of these roles, we'd have no salvation. Without the prophet, without the priest, without the king, we would have no salvation. And the glory of Christmas is that Jesus has come to perfectly take up and fulfill every one of these roles for us. He was born to be the Messiah. And this is critical, that he was come to be the Messiah. And we'll explain what this means. But this is critical for us this morning because only the Messiah can unite and accomplish every role of our redemption. Let me say that again. Only the Messiah can come and unite and accomplish every role of our redemption. And we'll see this, the fact that Christ is the Messiah, as we dive into the story of his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is a story that shines forth the glory of the Messiah and sets us up for where we're going for the rest of our Christmas sermon series. And as we dive into this story and focus on the fact, the reality, the glory that Christ is our Messiah, we'll see two aspects of what it means for him to be the Messiah that will form the outline for the rest of our time together this morning. And so with that, would you read along with me, beginning in verse 13, and then join me in a brief word of prayer. Beginning in verse 13, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to, Jordan, or to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now. For thus, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, this is your word, and we need the help of your spirit. Help to understand, help to proclaim, help to apply to our lives. And Lord, we we stand gazing in and attempting to behold what is a great mystery, but what is a wonderful reality, that you came for us. The Son of God took on flesh that we might become sons of God ourselves. Lord, help me to present you as imperfectly as I may in truth, that we would see your glory and be changed by the sight of it. Oh, Lord, help our hearts to worship you. Would you come through the word and by the power of your spirit to occupy that center stage in our hearts, in our lives, and in our Christmas season? We ask and we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so, as we begin our Christmas series, it's only appropriate that we begin 30 years after the birth of Christ. And uh, just a little bit off there. But we're going to start with a story that occurs 30 or so years after Jesus was born, after the Christ was born in Bethlehem. Now, fast forwarding, we look toward his baptism. Because in his baptism, we see who he was born to be, as who he is and who he's always been. Uh, Now it goes public, um, and his ministry as he undertakes these roles and these offices. It, it goes public and begins in a formal. This is what's happening at his baptism. And so his baptism is the public pronouncement of the fact that Christ has come to be who fulfills these roles. And so we see um, in the text here, looking at Matthew 3, that Jesus um, has come and that he is the Messiah. We'll see this as we um, dive in here. But the first thing that that means, that Christ is the Messiah, is that it means that he's God's man. Point number one, very simple. Christ is the Messiah, and the fact that he is the Messiah means he's God's man. That is, God's appointed man for the job. And what's the job? To deliver his people from their sins. The Messiah who's come to do what Saul and David and the kings of old were anointed for, that is to defeat his people's enemies, to rule over them, to lead them in obedience to God. Christ is the Messiah who has come to do what Saul and David were anointed for, but fell short of accomplishing and completing. He is the one his people have been awaiting, have been hoping for, to do all that is needed to restore 
the people of Israel, to finally and fully forgive their sins, to end the exile they're living in, to bring them back into God's kingdom, and for all the rest of us who aren't Israelites, to give us entrance into that kingdom, to show us the way to find life, to show us the only one who can bring us peace with our Creator, and to lead us in a way of life that honors Him and finds blessing um, in that. And so Christ has come to be the Messiah. This means He's the appointed man for the job. And the story here in Matthew, it picks up with the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has come to get people ready for just this occasion, just this event, for the Messiah to be revealed to the people of Israel. He's come and he's told everyone, hey, the Lord is coming, so you have to get right with him. You need to repent of rejecting the king who is and receive this baptism as a sign of your repentance, showing that you're turning away from sin and making yourself ready for the Lord to come. John is getting people ready for the Messiah to come, and he, looking at verse 11 in Matthew chapter 3, um, is looking forward to a Messiah who will come, who's even a greater Baptist than he is. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, the one we're waiting for, the Christ, is coming, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with and fire. John is proclaiming and preparing the people for this greater one to come, and here in the baptism of Christ, we see him. The one he has been making the people ready for is now revealed in the waters of baptism. And so, Jesus comes to John to be baptized with his baptism, and in verse 16, it says this, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And this verse, it demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God's man to do the job. And we know this because in verse 16, he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit falls upon him. And the Messiah, uh, that term Messiah, is just a um, word that means in the Hebrew, anointed one. The Messiah was one who was anointed. Um, and in the Greek, it comes in as Christ. So when we say Christ, it's the same thing as to say Messiah. It means the one who was anointed. And back in the Old Testament, there were many, uh, you know, lowercase m messiahs, many who were anointed, but through years of failure and lacking of fulfillment of the office, um, these kings came and went, and they were looking forward to the one who would come as a capital M messiah, who would be anointed by God's spirit, would receive the spirit without measure, about the, the time of deliverance and restoration. And so, Christ has proven to be God's man for the job because the Spirit falls upon him and anoints him. Um, so literally, in his baptism, <laughs> Jesus is messiahed, <laughs> if you will. The Spirit comes upon him and shows him to be this Messiah, this anointed one. And we've seen this uh, in 1 Samuel. We saw that when Saul was chosen to be king, he too was anointed with oil by Samuel the prophet in chapter 10. We'll see this of King David in chapter 16, that when he is chosen and put forth to be the deliverer of God's people, he also will be anointed with oil. These men were set forth by 
the prophet and poured oil as a sign of the Spirit uh, to come, who would fill them and empower them for their role as deliverer of God's people in order to save them from their enemies. But unlike Saul, (laughs) Jesus is God's chosen one, not man's chosen one. Saul was chosen on the basis of his outward appearance, though his heart was far from God. Yet Christ, (laughs) he has the very heart of God. And even David, King David, who is the man after God's own heart, who is the one who is better than Saul, um, he himself didn't possess a perfectly clean heart. And we know the story. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. He tries to cover it up through deceit and murder, and his sin is found out. And then in Psalm 51, he prays, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so even David, the faithful one, uh, was still one whose heart, though it was a man, he was a man after God's own heart, still had a heart that wasn't perfectly aligned and perfectly in tune and perfectly pure before God. He too falls short. He needs to ask God not to take his spirit. He must repent. But Christ, looking at the text, he has nothing to repent for. You see, this is why John says, me? <laughs> Baptize you? How could this be the case? For you're the righteous one. You don't need to receive a baptism of repentance because you have nothing to repent of. Yet Jesus comes and he says, well, baptize me in order to fulfill all righteousness because he comes to represent his people and he comes to obey in every area in which they failed. And so for the Israelite back then, for God's people, the proper response to his coming was to repent. The proper response was to get right with God and to turn from sin and seek to obey the Lord. And Christ, though he is sinless, comes to represent his people, to obey in every area where they failed in order to take a life of perfect righteousness and give it to them. And so the kings of Israel, Saul was called to obey, and we see that that ended disastrously. David was called to obey, and he was more faithful but still fell short. Christ is put forward here as the obedient anointed one, the obedient son, the obedient king who's come to represent his people, and he is baptized with water and anointed with the Spirit. And the Spirit, it comes upon him like a dove, the text says, and comes to rest on him. And there's two ideas that kind of come from this. The first is, you know, we've all seen a bird flying in the sky. It graciously kind of swoops down and lands on the branch of a tree and remains there. The idea of the dove is this idea that the presence of the Spirit came to rest and abide and remain on Jesus. The dove is also a symbol of purity and holiness, and so it goes along with the Holy Spirit. But one more idea that comes to mind is that we think of the baptism of Christ, the beginning of his ministry, as the beginning of his work to save and to renew and to recreate. And we think back to Genesis 1, as God created the heavens and the earth, and in verse 2 of Genesis 1, over the waters was hovering the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was present at the creation of the world, and here the Spirit is present again over the waters as the recreation of the world and the rescue mission of God in Christ begins. Christ has come to unleash the Spirit to save all who would call upon the Lord through him. And so we see this is happening in Christ being appointed as the Messiah. The Spirit falls upon him. The heavens open up, and God says... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God opens the heavens, 
sends the Spirit and gives a pronouncement, an announcement over him. And in short, he says, here's the one you've been waiting for. Here's the one to do the job. Here's the one who will save my people from their sins. He's the one who would be the king that's pictured in Psalm 2, verse 7, who has dominion over all the nations. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42, 1, who is filled with the Spirit, with whom God is well pleased, who would bring justice to the world. Justice through a righteous life, justice through justifying sinners like us. He says, here is the one you've been waiting for. Matthew 3 says, look no further. This is the guy. He's the man for the job. He's been filled with the Spirit and has the very power of God at work in him so that he can be that prophet, that priest, and that king. He's endowed with the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit, and he will fulfill all that has been put before him to save you. Jesus is the guy. And if he's the guy, that means no one else's. There's no other person under the sun, no other system, no other government, no other ideology for which the heavens have parted ways and opened up and said, this is it. This is the way to truth. This is the way to peace with God. This is the way to find the proper authority under which to live your life. God opens the heavens to say, look at the person of my son. He is who you ought to look for. He is the anointed one with my spirit, such that the search for truth, for peace, for authority, for the way I ought to live my life is over, is ended, as all these things come together in the one who is anointed. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, Heidelberg? Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes you can't think of any fun keywords, so you just make up a nonsense one. Heidelberg, Schmeidelberg. But as the Heidelberg Catechism sums up for us, only Jesus can, can be this, this one to sustain the weight of all of our hopes, to be the source of all of our joy, to be the total Savior we need because he is the Messiah. And the Messiah is one who's been uniquely set apart and empowered to deliver God's people. Listen to Heidelberg Catechism question 31. The question is, why is he called Christ? That is, anointed. The answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the Westminster Lodger Catechism adds, anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability, back to Heidelberg, to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in that salvation that he has purchased for us. The Messiah is the one who has been set apart to take up these roles and to fulfill them completely. Because he is God's empowered with God's spirit to deliver people. This is the job of the Messiah. This is the job description he's come to fulfill. Christ is this Messiah and, and no other. And as Matthew says in his own words, looking back at chapter 1, 
A son would come, would be born of the Virgin Mary. In verse 21, the angel says, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is the Messiah, God's man to do the job of delivering, and and here's the job. (laughs) Simply put, he's come to be like Saul and David and defeat God's people's greatest enemies. And what's the greatest of all our enemies? Sin. Sin, that which separates us from God, our creator. Sin, that which brings about death and decay. Sin, that which Satan uses to accuse and to deceive. Sin is the greatest enemy of God's people, and Christ has come as the Messiah to defeat it. Christ has come as Messiah to save us from sin. Yet, this is a a tall order, is it not? This is a tall order for any mere man to come and save his people from their sins. How could any man, even God's man, save us from sin? How can we be confident that Jesus will be different than even David, who was God's appointed and God's faithful, yet still fell short? And the answer is that we can be confident that God's man can save us because he's also God with us. Looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, this Jesus who will come to save his people from their sin, referring to him in verse 23, It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this brings us to our second point, that the Messiah is not just God's appointed man to save God's people, but that he's actually able to save them because he is the God-man. He's God's man. And point number two, the Messiah is the God-man. He's able to do the job, church, because he is God and man in one. This is why we can be assured that Christ can complete the job he was born to do. This is why we can be confident that our salvation is complete, that we can look to him and rest in his finished work for us because he is both God's appointed man and the God man. And we see this brought out in the text. We see um, quickly in chapter 3 that John, as he's baptizing the people of Israel, is looking forward to one in verses 11 and 12, who will come, who is even greater than he. John is looking forward to the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Question for you, church. Who can send the Spirit? Who has the authority? Who has the right? Who has the ability to pour out the Holy Spirit of God? Can a mere man pour forth and pour out the Spirit? Can a mere man baptize with the Spirit and make us new and give us new hearts and cleanse us from our sins? No. No man can pour forth the Spirit. Next, in verse 16, we see the heavens opened, which is a sign of a supernatural occurrence. A supernatural pronouncement is happening. The heavens open up. God himself speaks. There's something supernatural. There's something divine about the one who is being spoken of, this Jesus. And finally, in verse 17, we see what the voice of the Father says of him, what is pronounced, what is announced of this Jesus. This man and Messiah is also 
the beloved Son of God. The Son with whom he is well pleased. And while this reference to the Son, it brings together a couple Old Testament texts that refer to this Messiah figure, this hoped-for one of Israel who would come and save his people from their sins, referring to uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, in which the sons of David were considered to be the sons of God. So the anointed kings of Israel were called sons of God. Uh, Psalm 2-7, in which the king over all the earth is referred to as the son of God, where God says of him, today um, you are my son. Today I have begotten and I've given you all the kingdoms of the earth. This one is the son. Uh, thirdly, in Isaiah 42-1, we see that this this servant with whom God is well pleased, bringing together this language in Matthew 3.17, is the one who has been filled with the Spirit to perform the role of Redeemer. You might say, okay, well, this one is not necessarily <laughs> um, divine. Maybe a mere man could do a couple of those things. But the language here um, goes beyond just um, some even great man, beyond some messianic figure. He is the king. He is the servant. He's the the descendant of David, but he's also the beloved son of God. And that word beloved in, in Matthew and in Mark where it appears is similar to the way that John uses the word that we translate as the one and only or the only begotten. Christ is the unique son of God. That is the son, verse 17, who is beloved by the father, who is from the father himself. He has divine origin. He's not just, he is the Son who is from the Father, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten by the Father, who's now come and been made manifest in the flesh. He is the Son of God. And he comes to do, further proving his divine origin and nature, he comes to do what only God can do, right? He comes to save his people from sin. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Who but the Lord can deliver from sin? Who but the Lord can defeat death and the devil, the greatest enemies of his people? Who but the Lord, as we mentioned, could send the Holy Spirit? Who but the Lord could bring the very kingdom of God to earth and restore the people of God in and around himself? Christ has come, and he is the beloved Son of the Father. He is God and man. And we need this church. We need Christ to be both God and man because we have a mediator who can't fulfill both ends of the uh, agreement there, both ends of the bargain, if he does not play both roles. If he's only God, then man is not represented. But if he's only man, God is not represented. We need Christ to come as God and as man fully and take on each role to bring together what sin has separated. We need, church, a God-man, a Messiah who is both, so that as fully man, he can do what only man can do. That is, as man, he can live the righteous life God required of all men, that he's required of us, that we've failed to do. And as man, he can pay the price. He can pay the debt for the sin of man. Man is the one who owes. Man is the one who ought to pay. So Christ becomes man to live a life we ought to have lived, to die the death we deserved to die. But he's also fully God. 
doing what only God can do, which is saving us from the power of sin and enduring the infinite wrath of an infinite and eternal God. If he is not both God and man, our salvation falls apart. And this is what's pronounced of him in Matthew 3.17, that he is the beloved son, the divine son of the Father who is also taken on flesh so that he might save us to the uttermost. He is the son who has become um, both God and man. And listen, this doesn't mean that he wasn't uh, not, you know, he wasn't the son before and only became the son at his baptism. <laughs> no, it's not that Jesus has now been changed into something different that he wasn't before. Instead, the voice, quoting R.T. France, a New Testament scholar, declares what Jesus is, not what he has now become. And in this, we note especially how the phrase from Psalm 2-7, which is quoted here, where it says, today I have begotten you, that phrase is left out. God doesn't say, today I've begotten you. He just says, you are my beloved son. That is retained, focusing on the fact of who he is. He has always been the son of God, and now here, at this moment in history, 2,000 years ago, he is launching into the public exercise of his role for which he, as the very son of God, has been prepared, for which he, as the son of God, is uniquely suited for which he, as the God-man, can fulfill. Christ has come to be the God-man, doing what is proper for God and man, such that God and men would come together and be reconciled. And so he comes. God's appointed man, and he's also God. And the question for us is, well, who's a better candidate for this job than God? Can you think of one? We have a deep problem. Christmas addresses this problem, that we are separate from our, our creator. That God and man no longer live together as God intended in Eden because of Adam's sin and his falling short of keeping all the offices that he was given. Adam was the one who was called to be prophet, priest, and king, and he failed. And since then, the roles have gone unfulfilled. They haven't been united in one person, but Christ comes to unite the roles, to bring back what was torn asunder by sin and to bring back God and man who have been separate from sin. And if you have a big problem... <laughs> Well, you should call on the best man for the job. You should hope <laughs> that someone greater than you, more powerful than you, more able than you would come and, and help you. And in Christmas, in Christ taking on flesh, God himself, church, has gotten involved in solving our deepest problem. God himself has come to reconcile us to him. Who's a better candidate? Who is more wise than God? Who is more powerful than God? Who is more faithful to complete what he set out to do? And he's the very one who's gotten involved in the task of our redemption. And he's going to complete this task through the Messiah, the one he's appointed, the one who is his son, the one who will be that perfect prophet, priest, and king. And this is the wonder, church, of the incarnation, that God himself has come into our situation, that he has taken on flesh to ransom us, that he was made low to raise us up, that he came to us and for us, that as 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, that God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's come to completely overcome the separation that we had from him due to our sin. He drew near to us because we couldn't draw near to him. 
as unholy and sinful rebels. The Son of God took human nature into union with himself so that we could come into union with God. And so the incarnation declares of Jesus that he is the one who is appointed, who is able, and who is willing to come and do the work of rescuing and redeeming and saving us to the uttermost. Matthew 3 declares that he is God's man and he is the God-man and he has come for us to bring God and man together again. He is the Messiah that we all need, the only one who can bear the weight of all our hopes, to be the source of all of our joy, and to save us from sin and guilt and shame that plagues our lives. He is the one to whom we must look and to whom we can look for help. And considering Christ coming for us, and offering himself to be our great help, to be the greatest of all helps. John Owen writes this, speaking of Christ coming for us, humbling himself from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, he says, when we go to someone for help, two questions arise. The first is, is the person to whom we are going willing to help us? And secondly, is he able to help us? We need to know that Christ is both willing and able to help us and meet all our needs. Owen, continuing, says, in light of the incarnation, in light of the humbling of God in Christ, he says, we may well ask, what will Christ not do for us? He who emptied and humbled himself, who came down from the infinite height of his glory and took our finite nature into union with his infinite nature, will he not meet all our needs, and answer us according to his infinite wisdom, all our prayers for help. Will he not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved? Will he not be a sanctuary for us? What won't Christ do for you? He became the God-man for you. He set aside his divine prerogatives and humbled himself by becoming man. At Christmas, the infinite one stooped so low as to dwell with finite ones. The creator became one and lived among his creatures. The holy and the glorious and the all-powerful God came to live with and live for unholy, unimpressive, and weak sinners like us. So church, we fix our eyes on the total Christ, the whole Christ of Christmas, and we ask ourselves the question, as we look at Jesus, our Messiah, the God-man for us, could he be any more committed to our salvation? Could he be any more committed to those he came to save? He plunged himself right in the center of all of our greatest problems. And in Christ, God has solved those problems for us. And so if you're weary this morning and struggling under the weight of of, of sadness this Christmas season. The Son of God became man to be a refuge for men. He came to be a refuge for you, to bring you into union with himself. Joy himself took on flesh and became man in order to unite men and women to the joy that is found in him forevermore. He's committed to your joy, and he's come for this joy. If you're burdened with a sense of sin this morning, 
and feeling distance from God or disruption with your relationship and communion with him. Hear this this morning, church. The Son of Man, or the Son of God became man to overcome all that has separated you from God. He came to take on a human life, live a perfect human life, and die the death you deserved for your sin so that nothing would remain that could separate you from God. He came in love for you so that nothing would separate you from his love. God became man for this. And we could go on and on and on talking about all that Christ has done and all that he's accomplished and coming for us. But this morning as we close, I just want us to draw our minds and draw our hearts to beholding this one, to beholding this Christ, who is God's appointed man to do the job of deliverance and who we can count on as a deliverer because he is God himself, able to save us to the uttermost. Would we behold the one who's come and revealed himself in the birth of Jesus Christ? Beholding the God-man who enters into our life that we might enter into his. Beholding the God who became man that we might become sons and daughters of God. Beholding the Christ who was born of a woman that we might be born again. Beholding the one who came down to us because we could never ascend to him. Beholding the one who would not let infinite distance prevent him from being with us. Beholding the creator who entered into his own creation. Beholding the son who was seated on high, yet made himself low for us. Beholding the wondrous mystery of the incarnation of Christ. The crown jewel and glory that is worthy of all of our wonder and worthy of all of our worship. Come and behold him in your heart through faith even now. And if you've never known him, you never beheld him, now you can receive him. Christ has come. He has stepped forward. He has taken on flesh. He is not out there, but he has come down to here for you. He has come to do the job of saving you. He's come to be the prophet, priest, and king you need, and he offers himself to you as a total savior, as a complete source of joy and peace, as the way you ought to live and the way you'll find blessing before God. Today, receive Christ at Christmas. And if you have him, oh, rejoice in him this Christmas. Rejoice in the one who's come for you. Rejoice even now. No matter what is happening in your heart, no matter what is happening in your life, because, church, God himself has come to be with you. God himself has come to be with you. And it doesn't make all the other things go away, but it just places them in the proper order, the proper light. God has come to be with you. And this is the glory, and this is the wonder of Christmas. And so would we marvel and wonder at the Christ of Christmas, at the wondrous mystery that he, the theme of heaven's praises, was robed in our frail humanity, and that in our longing and in our darkness, now the light of life has come as we look to and behold the glory of Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. Church, would you join me in prayer as the worship team comes to lead us 
in song as we behold the glory of Christ.